Welcome to The Long Run. This is a podcast for biotech adventurers. I'm your host, Luke Timmerman. Today's guest is Jeff Huber. He's the co-founder and general partner at Triatomic Capital. It's a relatively new venture fund that seeks to back century-defining businesses in engineered biology, new materials, next-gen compute, new energy, and automated economy. Jeff and his partners are looking at startups that collect and analyze data to address big challenges of the 21st century where deep learning and artificial intelligence could be useful. Jeff was the founding CEO of Grail, the company that sequences DNA from blood samples to detect early signs for 50 different types of cancer. Before that, he had a long and storied career in Silicon Valley, including 15 years at Google. Jeff has his fingerprints all over some of the most common apps that Google developed in those rapid growth years and which are now used by people around the world every day. Jeff has certainly come a long way. He grew up on a family farm in Northwest Illinois, about 20 miles away from where I grew up. I had no idea we had this much in common until we were hiking together on the trails of the Himalayas in 2022 on a fundraising expedition for the Fred Hutchinson Cancer Center. In this conversation, Jeff expanded on some of those early life experiences and how they affected his life and career trajectory. Part of Jeff's story involves personal tragedy. His first wife, Laura, died of cancer in 2015. This experience was part of what motivated him to work on Grail, to help more people detect cancer earlier. Although we didn't discuss it during this conversation, I should note that Jeff is now happily remarried and has a blended family. I asked some about his oldest daughter, Grace, because I got to know her on that same expedition in Nepal. This conversation ran a bit longer than usual, but I think it will be absorbing for people thinking about the intersection of tech and biotech, where so much potential for innovation resides. Now, please join me and Jeff Huber on the long run. Jeff Huber, welcome to the long run. Uh, thank you very much, Luke. I'm uh, very excited. Uh, I'm a first-time podcastee, so looking forward to this. All right. Well, not a first-time listener. I know that much. <laughs> um, well, you know, Jeff, as you know, I like to start these uh, podcasts with a bit about the person and where they come from. And I happen to know your story. We have a lot in common here. Uh, so tell our listeners about... Um, Northwestern Illinois. Uh, indeed. So I grew up uh, in the very corner uh, of Illinois, the Northwest corner. My family home was about uh, three miles from Iowa and about uh, 50 feet from Wisconsin. Uh, in fact, the, the road that I grew up on, it was a gravel road, was the state line between Illinois and Wisconsin. And uh, it is a neighborhood that uh, I know you know well, because I think we grew up about eh, 10 or 15 miles away from each other. Yeah, yeah. I discovered this of all in of all places, the Himalayas, <laughs> <laughs> which we can get to later. But so what was it like growing up on a farm in northwestern Illinois? What What did your family do? Uh, sure. So I grew up on a uh, small farm. It was about 150 acres, which is uh, very modest in the scheme of things. 
And uh, it was uh, uh, a very democratic farm. We did a little bit of everything, um, but uh, primarily dairy, but also beef cattle and crops and hogs and chickens. Uh, it was a, a great place to grow up. Um, uh, but uh, I, I relatively early on in life um, figured out that it was not the, the future that uh, I wanted to have. Um, so it was very motivating, uh, to, uh, go out and explore the world and see if there were other things possible. Now, Jeff, why did you say it was a great place to grow up? What kinds of things did, uh, you learn or were instilled in that way of life? Um, so I think, uh, growing up on a farm, you quickly learn, uh, responsibility because, uh, you're as a, as a farmer, you're completely accountable for results. Um, there's nobody else that you can, uh, look to that's going to do the job or, or nobody else that you can blame other than perhaps the, the weather. <laughs> um, so you get from an early age, a very strong sense of accountability. And I think that was amplified being on a dairy farm because, uh, uh with a dairy farm and with cows, you're milking the cows twice a day, every day, uh, whether you want to or not. Um, the cows don't take vacation. And uh, in fact, my father from a uh, very young age, he became kind of the the head of household when his father passed away at uh, when he was young. And from when he was 14 years old until he retired in his late 60s, he was never away from the farm for more than uh, a day because of that uh, responsibility. Yeah. Yeah, that very much resonates with me. Although we did not have dairy, uh, we had beef and and hogs, but the same thing applies. They need to be fed and uh, cleaned up after. And uh, it doesn't matter if it's uh, 20 below zero in the winter or 95 degrees and humid in the summer. <laughs> you, you have a job to do. Yeah. Um, uh, although uh, dairy farmers would say that was uh, you were doing hobby farming. Yeah, I, <laughs> I know. I know. <laughs> well, so you, when did things uh, turn for you? Like you kind of realized there's, there's there's this wider world out there that you wanted to explore and and learn something different. Uh, sure. Um, so I had the the good fortune of having um, kind of role models and mentors as I was growing up. I have a a brother that is uh, 14 years older than me. Um, I'm the youngest of five. Um, uh, so I have uh, two brothers, two sisters. And uh, my older brother in particular was kind of the vanguard of uh, exploring life uh, beyond the farm and beyond the immediate uh, uh, area. And then I also had an uncle um, who was uh, lived in Chicago, which was uh, three hours away and and very exotic as a kid of, uh, of the big city. And um uh, they were both instrumental on kind of helping me understand possibilities beyond. And I also got uh, just kind of flat out lucky um, in timing and opportunity where uh, I was uh, in part inspired by my brother and uncle, uh, was interested in computers, and then had a um, uh, godfather that uh, that unfortunately passed away, but left uh, as part of that a little bit of money for me, actually through my parents. And uh, at uh, basically 13 years old, I lobbied that a good use of that money would be buying a computer, uh, specifically an Apple II computer. Okay. Now, what years are we talking here? You know, I, I'm bad at time. That was like 1982, 83? Apple II. Um, okay. So this was the first one that was kind of becoming popular in schools. 
yeah, so uh, around it was those years. A, an, an Apple II Plus, uh, very specifically, um, 48K of RAM, um, uh, entirely uppercase uh, only uh, typing experience. And uh, you usually hooked it up to a TV monitor that gave you, you know, 40 columns uh, of text for doing things. So uh, after successfully lobbying to get that computer, um, I then kind of self-taught of how to do things with it and uh, uh, a little bit of demonstration that of my uh, latent engineering interest. One of the first things I did was take a soldering iron to it because there was a modification where you could make it type both lowercase and uppercase. So I ended up soldering in the the uh, the lowercase mod to uh, soup up my my Apple II Plus computer, which frightened my parents that a 13 year old with a soldering gun was uh, uh, getting in the guts of the the then quite expensive computer. They were about uh, probably three thousand dollars for the whole setup by the time we were done. <laughs> they were worried you'd fry this or ruin the TV <laughs> or something like that, right? <laughs> um. Okay, so, but what was it about the computer that uh, intrigued you? Um, so, uh, you could see already then, that was the 1980s, and and I mentioned kind of brother and, and uncle, and they were working in the financial industry, um, not a, a terribly sexy corner of it. Uh, they were both accountants, but they, you know, would describe how their business and their industry had been changed already by computers in the in the early 1980s compared to um, how things had been done just a short time before. And, um, you know, I became just really excited about the the future of computing. And my dream quickly became that I wanted to design the next generation of, of computers that would just keep increasing those capabilities. And then the other side of it, pragmatically, um, is uh, uh, growing up on the farm. There are some people who are born to be farmers and some who aren't. Um, and it's a very noble profession. But um, I pretty quickly uh, decided that um, uh, it wasn't for me because uh, if I if I continued doing it, uh, essentially my future was filled with cow poop. Uh, <laughs> and, and that was dramatically demonstrated to me. There was one time I was... It was springtime, and I think I was 13. And uh, if you've grown up at a farm, you know uh, the phenomena of cow yards, uh, which is where all of the the animals collect to uh, to feed. Um, uh, they produce prodigious amounts of uh, byproduct from that. Um, and uh, particularly in the springtime, when you get the spring rains, uh, sort of the cow yard turns into a uh, a thick soup. And there was one time where I had to cross the cow yard to go let the cows out on the other side. And I was wearing my my rubber boots and I got about halfway across the cow yard when I got literally kind of stuck and uh, my boots were were stuck in the muck and uh, and wouldn't pull out. And uh, I remember very vividly thinking in that moment that, uh, you know, I see my future and uh, uh, it's filled with cow poop and <laughs> and there's got to be a, a better way. And uh, the cows were there looking at me not very sympathetically. I was like, uh, yeah, there, there's there, there is another future, uh, hopefully. I'm getting this visual now because you could <laughs> slide your feet out of the rubber boots. But then, of course, you've got to step do? in everything around there, which you don't want to do. So how did you get out? Uh, I, I, I finally sort of wiggled enough to uh, get them maneuvered out and uh, got to a slightly safer place. But 
no, it was a, <laughs> a, a moment of clarity. Yeah. Did now, uh, what kind of school did you attend and, uh, what kind of student were you at school? Oh, okay. So I think in the scheme of things, I was a, a pretty good student, a fairly precocious, uh, student, um, I had a little bit the benefit of being youngest of five uh, and having older siblings. I mentioned my older brother, but also two older sisters uh, and a mother who was a school teacher. So I was kind of on the uh, when my other older siblings were bored, they would uh, teach me stuff. Um, so I had a little bit of a head start and then kind of a nice foundation with my mother being a school teacher. Um so did well throughout school. Uh uh high school, I ended up going uh uh to the nearest uh town of any sizable note. Uh, you probably have been to Dubuque, Iowa. Um yes. so I through, uh, ultimately to high school uh at a college prep school there, um, which was a big, a big shift because my grade school graduate graduating class was was 12 kids. Um, and then I went to, uh, the prep school there, which was, uh, over 400 kids in the class. Um, was that Wallard high school? Uh, it was, it wasn't. Yeah. Me. Yeah. And there were, that... there were more, more than a few Timmermans there. Yeah. Well, that's actually where my dad went to, co- uh, went to high school. And, uh, um, I used to write for the Dubuque Telegraph Herald, little known oh, fact, uh, during my high school and college years. Um, <laughs> yeah. Uh, so you um you were obviously a pretty pretty good student and uh you, you had this hobby here with the computer um you decide to go back to the University of Illinois uh yeah. were you thinking that you would study computers there from the beginning uh from the very beginning yeah no in fact the the program and it was kind of serendipity of I was very interested in computers and and had kind of laid out a a personal vision of I wanted to design the next generation of computers and and ultimately supercomputers um, uh, w- without having any knowledge whatsoever of what that meant. But, <laughs> but it now, turned what, that... Uh, what, was, what was that place like, that computer science department at yeah. Illinois that you encountered there? Yeah, no, I got, I got incredibly lucky or was fortunate that kind of in, not exactly in my backyard, it was five hours away, but in the state, um, there was a, a world-class university um, that uh yeah j- just i was lucky enough ended up being the the intersection of an amazing place but that also i could afford to go <laughs> yeah uh, in-state tuition in-state tuition i i think it was my my freshman year tuition was i think thirteen hundred dollars um which was fantastic and you get to uh, go to a department that had was larry smar on the faculty there uh yeah yeah, so Larry Smar was leading the uh, National Center for Supercomputing Applications and a uh, very strong program. I actually ended up doing uh, computer engineering, which given some of my interest in computer design kind of brings together all of the underlying core engineering disciplines of you know physics and chemistry and uh, all of the, the core engineering prereqs within when I did my electives, they were all computer science, uh, programming electives. Uh-huh. But so this pretty, was, this was late eighties, early nineties. You were there uh, late eighties. So I was there 85 to 89 okay. and I, I sort of appreciated, but didn't fully recognize that when I was there, I was living in the future because university of Illinois was a, uh, 
very early on and very progressive around adoption and actually had been involved in the creation of the internet. So when I was doing my classes there, many of them were online, had online instruction. All of the programming classes were, you know, working on, uh, you know, relatively advanced for the time, mini computers. Um, it, uh, you know, and I was interacting with people across the, you know, campus, but across the country and across the world um, on the internet in, uh, um, you know, internet discussion groups. And in fact, my my senior thesis uh, foreshadowed a little bit other interesting things to come from Illinois later um, in terms of uh, internet browser, et cetera. But um, I did find when I graduated, it was kind of a shock that uh, all of those capabilities didn't exist in the real world. Um, so <laughs> later goals was to recreate the magic of uh, having... Uh, you know, continuous high quality internet connection uh, like I experienced at Illinois. Did you have a an email address at that time? I did, yeah. Uh huh. And even in the eighties, yeah, yeah, yeah. I had my my university email address and was you know using things like there were the Usenet uh, discussion groups. Uh, for you know, my my senior thesis ended up um, uh, being kind of a, a, a self designed program where I ended up creating things that foreshadowed the internet browser, um, where it was using the underlying protocol of Usenet discussion groups in NTP. But then I created a markup language that has some similar properties to HTML. Um, and then it was a uh, multi-mode um, uh, where it worked uh, across Macintosh and Sun uh, uh, computers in native mode. So the goal was that you had a, you know, magical front end that gave you access and insight of the riches of the internet, but it worked, um, you know, in, in native mode on whatever device you were using. So if you use it on a Mac, it felt like a Mac. If you use it on a Sun workstation, it felt like a Sun, um, which are some similar properties that later emerged with uh, the internet browser and Mosaic and Mozilla that uh, ultimately came out of Illinois. So you're in a whole environment there where people were, I mean, using computers with the old, um, you know, DOS style, you know, text heavy interface, um, you know, black screens, and it wasn't that user friendly. Uh, but you were in this place where people were thinking about how to make computers um, a lot more user friendly for the masses. Exactly. So it was multimedia. It was hyperlinked and interactive. Um, yeah. So I... I, I thought it was cool at the time, but yeah, it wasn't until I, I graduated that I suddenly realized how much I had been living in the future there. <laughs> uh-huh, uh-huh. And the Mosaic browser and everything else that became very well known, that came a little bit later. Yeah, and for and for what it's worth, the other, you know, obviously, there's been a lot of excitement uh, in the last while around AI, but it was in, you know, AI classes and building neural networks and expert systems and things like that in the late, uh, late 1980s. Um, Although then it was a somewhat of a, even to me then felt like an academic curiosity. They were super cool, but you didn't have the combination of data and compute that you really needed, um, you know, that then uh, uh, now has become a big part of the environment and, and huge driver of innovation across life sciences and many industries. Well, um, you know, from reading my 
publication. I'm uh, something of a cheerleader for big government investments in infrastructure and kind of catalytic <laughs> basic research. And, you know, I just, I, I smile thinking about uh, that decades worth of investment in a great state university like that you have there in Illinois and mm-hmm. what that enabled people to do, including young people like yourself who grew up on a farm somewhere in Illinois could come there and learn. I mean, this. These are the kind of resources that exist in the United States and that aren't everywhere. Yeah, no, it's 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 a pretty it was uh, and is uh, a pretty amazing institution and just the scale and impact it has. And then more recently, I've uh, actually gotten involved here now on the West Coast with uh, with UC Berkeley that in a lot of respects is kind of a a sister or a cousin school of University of Illinois in terms of the scale and impact that ultimately has. For sure. So you you got this amazing education in computer science at this <laughs> fortuitous time and place. Uh, and then what did you do? Um, so uh, so actually one other brief digression in that um, uh, that kind of fits the, the story together is uh, so I was the youngest of five and um, my parents, uh, after, uh, supporting the older kids, uh, somewhere in the middle of that had come up with a really interesting policy, which was they were very supportive of the kids going to college, uh, but came up with a policy that said, okay, if you want to go, uh, we'll pay for the first year. And then after that, uh, you're on your own, you need to figure it out. And, uh, thankfully, rel- I, I heard about this when I was 13. So I started a a process uh, uh, to figure out how to do that. So I actually started a business when I was 14 years old um, in high school that was um, kind of an e-commerce business before the E existed. (laughs) (laughs) It was actually a a mail order computer products uh, company. So I was one of the the first uh, pioneer companies that was uh, advertising in the back of computer magazines and selling computer equipment and then software uh, you know, from the bedroom, uh, of my farm in, in, in Illinois. That's Uh, so cool. That's like the, you know, you're creating a catalog for basically the stuff that you wanted to buy and figured, well, maybe some other people want these things too. Exactly. That, that, that was the first motivation. I remember going to the, the store, uh, computer store in Dubuque, Iowa, and trying to buy a box of floppy disks. And it was $50 for a box of, of floppy disks that you needed continually then. Um, and, uh, yeah, so it started with, I, this is a problem I need to solve of, I want to be able to afford the things that I want to support my computer habit, but then, uh, parlayed that into providing it for others. Um, okay. So you, you got the whole entrepreneurial, uh, DNA expressed now <laughs> along <yeah. laughs> with gaining your technical, uh, training in computer science. So some, some braids are coming together here. I can see. Yeah, exactly. And then that was a business that I ran through college while I was, uh, pursuing my degree. So I was, I was pretty busy, uh, as a kid because I was running, uh, running the business and ultimately had, uh, Kind of ten or eleven employees working for me um, while I was uh, going through the the engineering program, um, but then tying that back to kind of where where did I go from there? Um, as I was wrapping up senior year, I had a kind of faced a, a choice of do I want to continue uh, doing this, running this business, or do I want to? Because at that point it was doing pretty well. I was up to kind of a few hundred thousand dollars a year in revenues and. Um, you know, had more than more than paid for school. In fact, my my 
uh, college graduation present to myself was I uh, I bought myself a Porsche. <laughs> <laughs> At 22, that's a pretty big deal. A, a, a red Porsche 944. And uh, I thought that was, yeah, that was, that was, that was cool uh, then. Um, but then I had a decision of, am I, am I going to continue this or uh, do something else? And kind of as I looked at it, I could imagine, you know, what it, what it would mean to go from, okay, I've got 10 employees today. You know, I can imagine 50 or even a hundred, but I looked at big companies and was really mystified of, you know, how do you get, you know, big corporations? How do you get thousands of people, tens of thousands of people to kind of organize and all pull the same direction? Um, so ultimately I ended up selling, uh, selling that business, which was really just kind of selling the customer list and, and kind of the running operations, um, uh, to then just focus on learning and learning more. So I ended up going into consulting because I thought that would be an interesting way to just get exposed to a bunch of different businesses and segments and, and try to understand how, how business works. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. And how long did you stay in consulting? Uh, yeah, not that, that long. Um, so I ended up going to a, a startup consulting firm, uh, that then, uh, was actually a quite, it was a technology consulting, uh, company, uh, that was then acquired by McKinsey and company, uh, the big, uh, management consulting firm, uh, management and strategy. And I think that was McKinsey's first and only acquisition ever. Uh, because it, I think, highlighted at the top levels the you know how complicated politics can be of bringing partnerships together. But actually, the the younger people, the class that I was in, ended up uh, being an amazing experience uh, for us, and actually ended up being a you know a group that went on to to great leadership positions at at McKinsey and and other places. Was there any particular project that stood out for you, or did you just get a variety of uh, exposures to different management teams, different kinds of problems that existed in business? It it ended up being really interesting. So I um, uh, ended up building, writing code, building systems in support of McKinsey strategy projects. And I mean, there were a couple, like we did a, a job for a a uh, project for a very large uh, kind of brand name insurance company uh, near Chicago, where they had multiple product lines, uh, but they didn't have any way of understanding kind of which of their customers had bought which, and they wanted to be able to cross sell, and they wanted to be able to understand risk across them. So, you know, three other, actually, it turns out, University of Illinois students and I built a system that kind of sucked the data out of three different mainframe systems and a mini computer system, integrated it in a front end that then kind of visually let them understand and see who their most valuable customers were, who, um, uh, what the, the best cross-sell opportunities were, kind of automated the process of providing uh, suggested cross-sells to the agents. Um, so it was a really interesting system that was, you know, for the very early 1990s um, was pretty ahead of its time. Um, mm -hmm. so Using computers to uh, really enhance business processes, speed things up, make them more efficient. That sounds pretty cool. Yeah. Yeah. That was a fun one. Also worked, actually ended up working in Mexico City for six months. Uh, and I spoke nothing more than high school English or high school Spanish, sorry. Um, and was working with an entirely Spanish language speaking team. So, 
quickly kind of got my head around, I can either learn Spanish really quickly or have a dozen people uh, uh, learn to speak English. So it's way easier for me to get good at Spanish. So I ended up kind of learning Spanish, doing the project entirely in Spanish. Um, and then actually similar themes, building a system that integrated across five or six different computer systems that they had an integrated view of the customer so that they could do a much better job of, of risk management and uh, kind of cross-selling products. Ah, okay. Now, how did you end up going to the West Coast? Ah, so um, back to kind of that moment of clarity in the <laughs> in the cow yard. Um, and I mentioned that the dream was to, to ultimately build uh, and architect computers. Um, uh, the kind of coming directly out of University of Illinois, there now is a well-worn path from there to Silicon Valley. Um, but there wasn't at the time I was coming out. But I had figured out that my my dream company, Apple, uh, was there. And there were other companies that were coming along that were really cool, like Sun Microsystems and, and Silicon Graphics. Uh, and that's ultimately where I wanted to be. So I ended up using the the work in consulting to, after doing a couple of these initial projects, steering to, okay, I really want to work on things, um, you know, in Silicon Valley. Um, so I ended up uh, then getting on projects that got me to uh, San Francisco and, and working in Silicon Valley and building a network here um, that uh, ultimately then, you know, helped uh, uh, cement my position here. So what was your first job out on the West Coast? Ah, the first project was working with a uh, a company that made uh, very leading edge technology at the time, which was corporate voicemail systems. Um, and it was working with them around kind of designing the next generation. And I don't know if you remember this in the in the early 1990s, but before email was widely prevalent. Um like voicemail systems had gotten wildly overused <laughs> where at least on a lot of companies, it was the the precursor of email and the kind of things you would do uh, now with email or things like Slack um, people did with voicemail. So there were actually really sophisticated systems for being able to, uh, you know, uh, uh, you know, both record and route and process uh, voicemail based um, interactions. People probably left longer than necessary messages even then, too. Oh, my God, yes. <laughs> yeah. no, okay. I, I remember working in consulting of getting like the the five-minute voicemail from a partner about what, you know, he or she thought was the next things that we were supposed to do and uh, and then furiously taking notes to try to capture all of the, the, the wisdom that was shared. <laughs> well, at least it was in a digital format. I do remember the old school uh, answering machines with uh, mini cassettes or micro cassettes. Yeah. Yeah. Um, okay, so let's fast forward a little bit. Um, you spent like a major part of your career at Google, um, yes. starting in the early days. Uh, how did you get started there at Google and what did you work on? Sure. Um, so the, the quick Silicon Valley path was after landing in, in Silicon Valley, I worked uh, at a company called at home network, um, that was building out broadband internet. So that kind of ties back into when I was at university of Illinois and living in the future, um, at home network provided an opportunity to, to build out the internet and make that accessible for all of my friends and family so that, you know, they could live in the future. Like I had been 
you know, seven or eight years prior. Um, and then uh, from there, I went to eBay for a while. Uh, and eBay was an amazing uh, uh, company at the time. I was really inspired by their mission of democratizing uh, commerce and, and enabling little guys to, you know, play on the same playing field as, as big merchants. Um, but ultimately, what I found there was it was more of a marketing company than really a a company that that believed in technology driven innovation. Um, and then that was the the springboard of moving to Google. And from the first discussions I had with people at Google, you know, things that would take uh, weeks or months at eBay of kind of convincing people the right thing to do were literally kind of a, a, a two minute or a five minute hallway discussion of, oh, of course you would do that because it's the right or most interesting uh, or most innovative uh, technical approach. Um, and then what? Go figure it out by the end of the day or the end of the week? Uh, pretty much, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, and at the time I started there, uh, Google had a radically flat structure and some really interesting cultural properties. Um, so I had had I'd gotten to the point of, of an at-home network, and then at eBay I had fancy titles and big teams. Uh, but ultimately, going to eBay uh, or sorry, going to Google, um, I came in as a as an individual contributor because with the culture of Google, Google it was far better for somebody to come in and, and kind of get their hands dirty and prove themselves technically. Um, and then, you know, it, th there needed to be some management structure, but kind of you, you agreed to or consented to be a management leader after you had proven yourself technically. Um, uh -huh. So you're not just uh, management sitting in meetings and trying to work through other people. You had to get your hands dirty and do things. Exactly. Show exactly. your value. Yep. And it was, Interesting, and I remember discussions with my my boss at the time, who is the CTO of of Google, of of having that explicit discussion of you know I'm coming from a fancy title and and having teams do things, and he's like no 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 just just trust me just just dive in you'll you know people will do great and um, there's want and need for leadership and uh, people will force you uh, into into a leadership role as opposed to you know if I declare it now from the beginning then people will be suspicious or, you know, might resist, uh, but go and improve yourself and then it'll happen naturally. Now, what year was this that you joined Google? Uh, 2003. So 2003. It, and how many people were at the company at that point? Uh, so it was beyond garage stage, but it was roughly a thousand or so people at the time. But not yet a public company. Uh, correct. Yeah. Uh, Google went public uh, the next year, 2004. Okay. Okay. So it was a you know really crazy hyper growth period, and you know my boss's uh, the CTO's prediction very quickly became true. Of kind of within three months, people had nominated me as okay, you you should be our <laughs> the manager of the of the team and group and director and, and vice president. Um, uh, so things uh, uh, did develop uh, very quickly as he as he forecast. The fancy titles came later, but Google at that time, uh, it was the prevailing search engine. It was you know, a verb. <laughs> People knew the name and were using it widely, but it wasn't making money yet at this point, was it? Um, it was, so it was private. So no one really knew. Um, but at that point, yes, it was search engine only. Um, and it was perceived as, you know, company people who are, are, are really smart, but it was externally perceived as 
kind of chaotic and and not very organized. And, you know, if you're going in as a, as a manager or director or VP, it's kind of like herding cats. Um, and kind of when I landed there, I ended up focusing first on, on how Google makes money. So I ended up being pretty quickly responsible for Google's, uh, uh, advertising system, which ultimately was the economic engine that powered Google. And I did that not because, you know, I loved advertising, but because I had so bought in and identified with the 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 mission of of Google to organize the world's information, make it universally accessible and useful. And I thought that was important and would have a big positive impact on the world. Uh, but also saw the ambition of the founders and the team. And recognized and appreciated that there needed to be an economic foundation that that was built upon to enable, you know, all of the other things that Google wanted to to do. So I dived in kind of with the team, ended up building the advertising system. And in some respects, it was kind of a backwater within Google because uh, Google was a search engine. You know, the 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 top engineers wanted to work on search and and had it was almost perceived as a little bit unseemly to make money. <laughs> but having come from, from eBay previously, I was like, you know, making money is a, is a pretty good thing, but you can do it the right way. So part of what I tried to lay out and, and share with the, the engineering teams there was, you know, it's not an advertising system. It's actually, you know, this one system represents the world's largest uh, real-time auction system. Actually, even then, their their auction volume was higher than uh, than eBay, and kind of knocking on the door of the kind of volumes that the Nasdaq did in terms of transactions uh, 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 per second, transactions per minute. Um, it's also the world's largest uh, micropayment transaction system because Google and advertising makes money kind of twenty five cents at a time, and um, in this part was ended up being really key. Um, it's the world's most interesting and valuable uh, machine learning application um, where my teams built the first uh, machine learning systems uh, at Google uh, to support ads quality and uh, um, kind of content targeting and and other features in the ad system. So the it ended up being kind of getting people excited about the those really fascinating technical challenges um to then build you know the foundation of of what became the way that google made money yeah well and as they say the rest is history it's uh gone on to uh make a lot of it uh worked out all right it's it's yeah it's it's knocking on the door of a trillion dollar company you moved on to other projects over time um i'm not going to talk about all of them i know google maps was one that's one i happen to use quite a bit (laughs) um getting around town it's quite nice uh then then you got those products that it's hard to think about what life is like would be like without it Uh, well i i remember and it wasn't really better with those thomas guides that were kind of flipped (laughs) open and you'd have to like flip it over from one side to the next or flip pages while you're like stopped at a stoplight um yeah um, okay, so you, you, how did you make the move into life sciences? What piqued your curiosity there? And and this was at Google too, right? Yes. So, um, yeah, fast forward in the clock after building the ad system, I ended up um, kind of being involved, being involved in bootstrapping what we then called Google Apps. Now it's Google Workspace, but kind of Gmail, Calendar, Docs, that set of products, uh, uh, online collaborative products uh, now used by 
uh, latest stats are frightening, over 2 billion people. Um, and then you mentioned uh, Google Maps was involved at the early days of that and then ran Google Maps as a large, you know, $5 billion P&L, 5,000 person organization. But right at that point, I had hit my an interesting milestone. Um, I had been at Google for 10 years. I'd been there for a decade. And that seemed like a good opportunity to pause a little bit and reflect and look back at kind of what had I done or what had I accomplished. And if I were contemplating, you know, starting a second decade at Google, I wanted to go into it with a um, combination of I wanted to make sure I was doing things that are important and, and valuable and would have an impact on Google. But also, I wanted to go into it with with energy. Um, and it felt like just kind of turning the crank on the next big system at Google uh, wasn't enough. Um, I had self-diagnosed that I'm very energized by learning. And I wanted something that was going to be important for Google, but also would kind of throw me in the deep end of, of continuing to, to learn and grow and be challenged. And after a little bit of reflection, um, I decided that that life sciences was that. Um, and uh, so I ended up making a move to to Google X, which was the collection of crazy new projects, things like self-driving cars, and then uh, being a co-founder of Google's life sciences efforts. And, um, you know, the, the Google pitch on it was there's now a, a tidal wave of data being created from technologies like genome sequencing, that that's a, a Google scale opportunity and challenge. And then applying the kind of big data and machine learning, deep learning techniques where I'd spent the prior decade building those systems across Google applied to life sciences should be something that could drive, you know, new insights, new innovations, accelerate the rate of learning and scientific discovery um, in life sciences. And what did you know about biotech or life sciences at this time? <laughs> um, I was enthusiastically interesting, interested, but had no official background. So I, I joked to friends at the time that I was starting my night and weekend PhD in biology. And yeah. it was it was kind of like that. But I mean, we live in in amazing times now where you can learn, you can self uh, self teach. So it was really kind of diving into to journals and online resources and, uh, you know, books available and kind of building up from, you know, literally the the big red book of, of molecular biology that everyone uh, goes through probably as a sophomore in college to uh, building up from there. But you quickly ran into a lot of the challenges uh, about around data sharing and, uh, you know, between biology institutions and healthcare institutions and, you know, different types of data that don't really um, communicate well with each other and proprietary formats. I mean, this is a <laughs> something of a swamp you had just waded into. <laughs> it's a it's a swamp, but it's funny. There are things that people kind of overstate the challenge of. Um, and if you kind of approach them from first principles and build the systems right the first place, things like, you know, data privacy, security, HIPAA, um, they're, you know, they're, some of them are just clearly necessary and things like HIPAA are, are well-intended and now uh, kind of legally necessary. But if you build from the beginning with those properties or requirements in mind, um, it actually isn't that much of a of a constraint or limitation. Um, I, I've seen kind of far too often people hide behind them as excuses. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, 
when they are solvable. But that said, kind of the business side of things, like I remember there was a discussion about collaboration as we were ramping up the efforts at Google X and Life Sciences, a collaboration, data analysis collaboration with a very large hospital system that shall go nameless that uh, I think I kicked it off in 20, late 2013. And uh, I heard later after I had left Google, they finally got the deal done in kind of 2017, 2018, and were able to start making progress. <laughs> Four or five years just yeah, to so begin a collaboration. Exactly. So the pace of things, uh, I was used to a, a bit more uh, urgency of pace uh, in tech. Okay. Now you you stayed there at Google till 2016. This is when you made a big shift, but there might have been some interim steps. You you got involved with uh, th this work at Google branched out to Illumina. You started mm -hmm. to get to know some people there, and that led to Grail. Can, yep. What's the story there? Sure, sure. Um, so shortly after I had made the decision to head towards life sciences and make the move to to Google X and and help kick off and co-found uh, the efforts there. Um, sometimes the universe conspires in in good ways. Um, and I got a call kind of out of the blue from Illumina, who was looking uh, for a board member to help them uh, kind of sort out their, their big data strategy. Because similar observation, they saw this tidal wave of data coming, and they saw it as ultimately limiting for their customers and, and correspondingly for them if people couldn't make sense of the data. Um, so they wanted, uh, uh, you know, somebody with a big data background to, to come and join the board. Um, and then I ultimately did that in, and joined the board and, and helped them, uh, set strategy and direction there. Um, so this, this was with, uh, what, what year was this? Uh, 2014. Uh-huh. 2014 uh -huh. was part of it. I think by the time I joined, it was 2014. Um, actually it was the very beginning of 2014 because there's another dimension of the grail story. So that's the professional, uh, uh, story. The personal story, um, is, uh, right when I was joining the board of Illumina, um, my wife, uh, Laura was diagnosed, uh, with very late stage cancer, um, which ended up being a material part of the genesis of grail. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, we'll get there in a second, but. For now, you're just joining the board of Illumina, and your wife has got this scary diagnosis. Um, what happened next? Yeah. Um, so on the diagnosis, uh, so um, it really kind of came out of the blue and was and was uh, a shock, um, obviously to to her and and me. Um, she was 45 years old, super healthy, super fit, did everything right, ate right exercised, um, way healthier than me, <laughs> uh, and had no family history, uh, really at all of, of cancer, um, and started having some vague symptoms kind of over the, the winter, um, which, you know, she then coincidentally was going into her doctor for a annual checkup and the doctors are looking for, for horses, not, uh, not zebras or unicorns. So, you know, the initial diagnosis was, oh, you're a woman in your mid forties and it's kind of wintertime. So you've got, you know, a little bit of seasonal 
uh, uh, depressive issues and, you know, get some sunshine, everything will be fine. And, uh, oh, you're in your mid forties. So, you know, welcome to early stages of menopause. Oh, well, pre-menopause. So there wasn't any, you know, molecular diagnostic that she could take at that time to look broadly for cancer. Yeah. And then that nobody thought of it. Yeah, exactly. And that was really the beginning of what became a multi-month odyssey um, as her symptoms accelerated from kind of just feeling tired at first to then having some uh, hip pain, uh, which then, again, doctors looking for for horses, not zebras, said, oh, your you know, family history, your mother had hip replacement. So you're probably hitting the early stages of that. You'll need hip replacement someday. And then uh, there was another month of, oh, she started having some some uh, GI symptoms, which were very unusual for her. So then they decided to do a kind of exploratory um, uh, colonoscopy, endoscopy to see, you know, the, the hypothesis was this might be mild irritable bowel syndrome or Crohn's disease, you know, mild Crohn's disease. Um, and then, you know, it was a month long scheduling process to get that set up. And then when she finally did have uh, that procedure, um, that was kind of the beginning of the of the official diagnosis of, you know, they found a very small tumor, uh, two centimeters um, in the colonoscopy. And the original hope was that, you know, this could be the success case of a coincidentally discovered uh, uh, cancer early detection because the prognosis for early discovered colon cancer is 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 quite good. But then as uh, she and and we went through the next steps of of workup on that, um, unfortunately, that wasn't the case. Uh, When they did a a CT scan, the CT lit up and demonstrated that, you know, there had been extensive metastases to liver and through her lymph system and then ultimately in treatment to to lung and to bone as well. So this is now all over the place. It's really spread. And... uh... Then what in terms of treatment? Just just standard chemo, radiation, or or were you able to then get some kind of molecular characterization of what the two what the driving mutations might be? Yes. So we we had the you know combination of kind of where we are in Silicon Valley and having Stanford and UCSF in our backyards, and I'm on the board of Illumina that's at the leading edge of of uh, molecular testing uh, capabilities. So. Uh, you know, we started a full court press on, you know, yes, while the diagnosis is bad, this could or should be a, a solvable problem with the amazing state of, of technology and medicine that we have today. Um, so we pushed the, the limits of the system. She actually did the first, uh, foundation test that was ordered at least out of the GI department at Stanford, um, ultimately ended up using other products, uh, foundation medicine test. Um, uh, to assist in just kind of quantifying or, 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 or helping identify what are the drivers of the cancer and are there targeted therapies that would make sense. Now, Both- which at that time, it could look for maybe 200 or so mutation, common mutations, not all of which had drugs. Well, still don't. But yeah, um, I, if I remember correctly, it was a little more narrowly scoped. It was on the order of 50 or so then okay. uh, thrown over time. But uh, the net is that the combination of, you know, there were starting to be good tests, but, you know, we had to really push the system, including at leading, uh, uh, institutions like, like Stanford of, uh, 
you know, we, we, this is a test that should be ordered and this is how it could and should be used in the treatment because it wasn't being used that way yet. It was considered kind of speculative or research, um, you know, even by a very leading edge institution. And, and did you, did these tests find anything actionable? Um, they did, but what the entire process demonstrated to me, uh, so there, there is a, a standard of care and the very strong preference for the oncologists, um, and they are noble and well-intended is you kind of go with a standard of care. And then when you, uh, run out of options and toolkit, then you look for other things like would be indicated, uh, with a molecular test. So she jumped into a very aggressive kind of three chemo drug cocktail of, uh, uh, of treatment, you know, saw some initial gains and successes in that, but ultimately what that process demonstrated is kind of the futility of the current cancer treatment model when cancer is discovered at late stage, because though you would sometimes kind of based on the biomarkers available, which are not perfect, but you would see some kind of progress but ultimately you would see kind of regression and uh, kind of the cancer taking off again uh, because cancer at late stage, cancer is a disease of mutation and it's evolving under the evolutionary pressure of the immune system and any treatments or drugs that you're throwing at it. And it basically gets more complex, more aggressive and meaner as you go along. So you were kind of always behind and always chasing in that treatment process. If you like listening to The Long Run, you'll love a subscription to Timmerman Report. This is where you can read my in-depth reports on the most interesting startups in biotech, my regular Friday Front Points column that concisely covers the issues of the week, plus insightful coverage of current topics in biotech from a rotating cast of expert contributing writers. Individual subscriptions are available on a monthly, quarterly, or annual basis. Group subscriptions provide a license to companies who have more than one reader. Go to TimmermanReport.com and click on subscribe for more. This is your rational brain talking. You yep. know, this, you've been going to school on PubMed. You're you're inhaling everything you can learn about the state of the art technology and science. Um, but this is this is your wife, and ultimately, there's nothing much you or anyone else can do. That was ultimately ultimately the case. And um, you you had well have uh, kids. How old were they at the time? Uh, they were 12 and 10 at the time. Mm-hmm. And when so, did she die? Uh, she passed away in uh, late 2015, in uh, November of 2015. Which, so, in, in parallel, I was on the, uh, back to Illumina, I was on the board of Illumina, and Illumina was super and the, and the board members and, and management was super helpful in you know, identifying options and connections and, uh, uh, potential, you know, diagnostics that would add insight and, and connections to therapeutics that could add insight. Um, but, you know, in parallel with this, Illumina had kicked off a project shortly after I joined the board of, um, 
a, a, a project that was motivated initially by an accidental discovery that ultimately became the the kind of seed crystal uh, of what became Grail. Okay, Jeff. So this this really terrible thing happens to your family. Um, now, at this time, you were on the board of Illumina. You were connected to the best cancer doctors out there, a uh, lot of leading-edge researchers. This is the market-leading DNA sequencing company. And you really had a front-row seat for seeing the promise of personalized genomic medicine for cancer, but also its limitations. So now around this time, you you learned about these, I guess, incidental findings from some of the work at Illumina around cancer. Can you tell the story of like, what did you hear at first and what was so interesting? Sure. So as, as is, uh, Seemingly often the case uh, in in science, uh, many times the the biggest breakthrough discoveries are are ones that are accidental. And in this case, uh, and this was happening right in the window where I joined the board of Illumina, as mentioned, um, they had recently acquired a company in a different segment, uh, specifically Veronata, that was focused on non-invasive prenatal testing. Um, which is an amazing uh, test that has really changed uh, that that segment of, of clinical practice in the industry. Uh, Non-invasive prenatal testing is a test that uh, with a blood draw from the mother can find uh, circulating fetal DNA in the mother's blood and uh, can provide indication of fetal abnormalities um, and issues, things like Down syndrome, et cetera. Yeah, these were, I remember this company, they were looking for those, they call them trisomies, chromosomal yes. abnormalities. Exactly. So these are kind of like bigger, obvious red flags that you can detect in uh, in, in that circulating, uh, that, that DNA that circulates in the mother's blood. Correct, yes. And and what Illumina found with the working with the Veronata team was they had gotten to the point of having on the order of 100,000 tests that they had performed, and there was a handful of results that they couldn't explain, where the signature uh, looked very different than um, kind of the expected case for 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 those fetal uh, abnormalities, and uh, the team was was working on the makeup of those and a combination of uh, kind of inspiration from multiple angles. Uh, the uh, leading uh, uh, the person who was leading uh, Veronata's lab, and uh, coincidentally. Uh, Illumina had just recently hired the head of the National Cancer Institute as their chief medical officer. Um, but combination of great minds coming together then identified that, wow, the only thing that really possibly made sense was that these were instances of uh, late stage cancer um, as yet un uh, undiagnosed uh, in pregnant mothers. So they were looking for whether basically the the fetus might have down syndrome or something like that and they incidentally found the mother actually had cancer and um, no one and no one knew this correct so these were cases of undiagnosed cancer that this test that was developed for a completely different purpose um was identifying and it was finding those you know very large scale chromosomal rearrangements um, as signal in the blood that were coming from the mother instead of the the fetus. 
And then that lit the light bulb at Illumina of, okay, here's this test that was developed for a different purpose, um, but clearly there is signal there. What would it take to, to, to do it right? And instead of being able to detect, you know, only the small subset and, and very late stage cancers, what if we could slide way down the sensitivity curve and instead detect cancer at its earliest stages when it could really make a difference in outcomes? And then that led to kicking off the, the research project, R&D project, and collaboration with Memorial Sloan Kettering uh, at Illumina that ultimately became kind of the, the research and, and technology seed crystal uh, that became Grail. And the idea here is that um, tumors um, for all kinds of people might be walking around just shedding tiny trace bits of DNA might be sloughing off into the bloodstream. And if you had this very sensitive tool, um, a DNA sequencing instrument that's tuned in to do deep sequencing, you might be able to detect cancer at its earliest stages when it is most treatable. Exactly. Exactly. And it really is a, a needle in a haystack problem because if you think about cancer at its earliest stages, cancer, cancer starts from, from literally a single cell uh, and then grows from there. And it's the perfect combination, perfect bad combination of, of uh, you know, being mutated, not sufficiently mutated that it's inviable and just dies of its own accord, but uh, viable and reproduces uh, or, or uh, multiplies and then has the ability to evade or, or in some cases, even co-opt the immune system uh, to be able to grow unregulated. Uh, but it starts from a single cell and, and, and um, uh, at its earliest stages, stage one, when it's localized, um, it is a scant signal that you're looking for. So you learn all this while you're on the board at Illumina, and I'm guessing you had to be thinking, gosh, <laughs> what if this had been around um, early enough? For Laura, yeah, absolutely. It was seeing in parallel the the current state of the art of late stage cancer treatment, which, again, that there's incredibly smart and incredibly noble people that have been, you know, trying to develop drugs and and aspirationally cures for cancer for a long time, but it's just such a a formidable foe because of of its complexity and how it evolves. And then in parallel, we're seeing this, this technology that, um, yes, it if it had existed a few years prior, you know, two, three, four years prior, could have changed Laura's outcome potentially by detecting early um, where the prognosis can be dramatically in your favor. Um, but more broadly, this is a technology that could ultimately impact and, uh, and change the outcomes and, and save many millions of lives. Now, how did you end up uh, diving into this with both feet and forming a company and being the first CEO? Yep. Um, so Illumina, we saw the potential in the discussion that we had with the management team and board um, from the very beginning, uh, recognize the potential uh, importance and impact of, of Grail. And the discussions at the board were you know, beyond the level of this is a an interesting technology or a, or a, you know, potentially a good business to really, this is a, a moral imperative to make happen. And uh, the discussion at the board and with management team was how do you, how can you maximize the success of, of Grail and, and uh, provide the highest chance and probability of it having the impact that it should. <clears throat> and ultimately 
the board and the management team made the the bold choice to uh, instead of it stay is staying an inside project um, to spin Grail out um, because then we could attract the capital and talent and focus that we needed uh, to make Grail a you know hopefully a very substantial success. Uh-huh. So you're having these conversations with Jay Flatley, then the CEO, and Mustafa Ranagi, Chief Technology Officer. You're all kind of huddling and thinking about what's the best way to develop this technology and get it most uh, broadly uh, in use. Exactly. Exactly. And then timing-wise, um, I mentioned um, Laura passed away in November of 2015. It was actually literally the same week, uh, the Monday of that week, we made the decision as the board to to spin Grail out um, and to attract the funding that we needed and and uh, make that happen. Uh, actually, Laura passed away on Thursday of that week. Oh wow! So it was a very you... po- poignant, um, just alignment of 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 timing. So you didn't have a lot of time to grieve before going back to work. Uh, no, and. You know that the, the Illumina board and management team knew that I was deeply passionate about uh, about Grail and the topic, um, but were appropriately sensitive on 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 the timing is terrible. Uh, but a few weeks after Laura passed away, they um, approached me uh, about uh, leading the the cause and and building the foundation of Grail. Uh, but we're very thoughtful, and you know the timing is terrible, so do it. You know, at some point in the future, six months from now, a year from now, uh, when you're ready and we can have an interim CEO or or things like that. Um, but as I thought about it, um, I decided to kind of dive in right then. Uh, and ultimately, Grail was announced in the first week of January um, at the JP Morgan conference uh, that year of uh, 2016. I remember and, this. I, I covered it then, and yeah. Illumina had, had as a penchant or used to for making big announcements around yep. JP Morgan. So that was the that was the big announcement of 2016, and I just felt like that was the critical period where the foundation was getting built, the culture was being set, um, the key hires were being made. Um, you know, we knew that we, we were going to be shot out of a cannon, and there was a huge amount of work to be done. So um, I decided to kind of jump right in then. And so you you got in, you're involved right away in making a lot of these key decisions, hiring people, uh, putting together the the key experiments you'd need to demonstrate that this was um, going to be worthwhile. But of course, um, you what what were you up against? Uh, there were, I mean, lots of skeptics. I think really from the beginning that. Uh, you know, with cancer screening, the, the the tests that have been around for a long time either weren't that reliable, they'd miss things, or they were invasive or expensive, or there's something with that that caused people to have their doubts. Um, how did you think about setting up a a development program that would um, win over uh, the the research world, the healthcare world, and ultimately patients? Yep. Um, so anytime you're doing something new, uh, it's <laughs> it's hard because if it were easy, somebody would have done it already. And um, I, I, we had the foundation then of the data was uh, incredibly promising from the work that had been done to that point, the collaboration with uh, uh, with Memorial Sloan Kettering, 
Um, so we felt like we had a, a very strong foundation to build from, but then we recognized that we needed to do that at a uh, kind of with rigor and at scale that, um, you know, it, it, everyone else could, uh, it, where, where it would be very clear and everyone else could align around it. And um, as part of that, we built a culture from the beginning of uh, earning trust through our integrity and rigor and just how we define the clinical study work, um, the scale of it so that we were appropriately powered, that the, the data would be very clear, um, the approach uh, that we took to it, the transparency, um, a mindset of, of sharing and publishing data as we went along and sharing it with the community, um, engaging the FDA from the very beginning. Um, so we, rec- we, we, we felt it was too important to not do it un, unquestionably right. Uh-huh, uh-huh. And what was um, the first big break where you thought, okay, um, we might have a product here that uh, there's a line of sight to taking this to the market? Yep. Um, that i mean there there was confidence in the decision originally to you know again based on the data that we had seen uh as an r&d project at illumina uh so there was very strong confidence it really felt like the challenge was execution and scale and uh one of the things that we quickly had to confront though was uh there was some uh aspirational thinking uh, at the time of spin out of of what it would take to do that, what the timeline was and what it would cost. And I, I forget the exact numbers, but it was on the order of, okay, it will cost, you know, 100 or, or $200 million and it'll be a, you know, might be as big as a 10,000 subject clinical study, um, which felt very large at the time. But then when we went through it with the, uh, again, that mindset of 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 unassailable integrity and rigor and really thinking deeply about the product and the impact it can and should have and the specification needed for that, um, the clinical study program ended up being an order of magnitude larger. And yeah, and it took over a billion dollars. Yeah, ultimately has been a a well a, a billion dollar clinical study plan and has had, you know, now over 300,000 subjects in the in the overall clinical study program. And what kind of results has the Grail test uh, been able to deliver? Um, so the the results and and just being clear, Grail is now a commercially launched product. We launched commercially about two years ago. Um, so now there's uh, 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 Grail has been public and Illumina has been public. Well over a hundred thousand uh, uh, commercial tests that have been done. Um, the uh, combination of sensitivity and specificity that Grail was able to achieve. And then additionally, very importantly, um, an additional dimension of the test that took uh, uh, some really breakthrough work to make happen, which is also having a very high accuracy tissue of origin prediction um, has really kind of been the combination that that is demonstrating impact. And specifically around tissue of origin, we ended up using an additional dimension of uh, uh, of sequencing, of, of looking at methylation and methylation signatures, which was both a sensitivity enhancer for 
um, the test itself, but then enabled us to do a highly accurate, you know, kind of 90 to 95% accurate tissue of origin prediction. So if the Grail test says that you unfortunately have cancer, it then says, and oh, by the way, it's pancreatic cancer or colon cancer or breast cancer or lung cancer or whatever the 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 uh, prediction of the organ system involved uh, so that it can be directly actionable. So this was an important technology iteration that occurred along the way Correct. Uh, and, and ended up yielding a test that um, is now commercially available and can detect something like, I think, 50 different types of cancer in a blood right. sample with 90% uh, and above sensitivity. Um, so the sensitivity, uh, so the, the the specs of the test are, um, it's a multi-cancer early detection test, which is a first in a new category of uh, test being created. Um, so it's helping create and define a new industry. Um, the sensitivity is uh, on the order and it varies across uh, across the 50 cancer types, kind of varies in ranges, but the average is on the order of... Uh, uh, between seventy to eighty percent. Okay, um, so that, that, mean, that means that means it catches those cancers, but misses a fairly significant portion. Um, so here's where you get into a little bit of um, uh, kind of an <laughs> an ontological discussion. So the majority of cancers, over seventy uh, percent of cancers, don't have any screening paradigm today. So for example, pancreatic cancer, ovarian cancer, stomach cancer, uh, many of the GI cancers, uh, lung cancer, with the exception of people who are, you know, uh, uh, multi-pack-a-day smokers and who are eligible for low-dose CT. So the vast majority of cancers don't have any common screening paradigm today. Right. So if you're catching 70% of them in the blood versus catching none of them with whatever test you've got today, that's, that's actually quite a step forward. It is a massive step forward. So the sensitivity of a test not taken is zero. Mm -hmm. So it's a, it's a huge, uh, step and advantage of that. And really the the specificity part though, when it calls cancer that it, it can do with a higher degree of confidence. Correct. So given that this is a screening test being used in a, uh, uh, the primary use is in an asymptomatic or quote, healthy population, um, the specificity is a really key part of it and could be the thing that really, um, you know, would make a test not viable for screening. And that's where Grail put a lot of emphasis. Um, the specificity of the test is 99.5%. Um, and specificity, the complement of that is the false positive rate. So it's a kind of 0.5% or one in 200. And uh, that's really important because the, this has been the knock on a number of other cancer screening tests where they have a fairly high rate of false positives, which correct. causes people a lot of anxiety. It runs them through the medical system with lots of additional tests and potentially treatment that is unnecessary. Uh, so like there's just some taint around false positives. We want to avoid that. And that's what you did. Correct. Correct. So it has a very high um, uh, specificity, which we felt was critical 
for helping create this new category. And yeah, if you look across other uh, uh, screening tests that are done and ones that are used very broadly, I mean, they'll have on the order of, you know, 85, 90, uh, 95%, uh, whereas Grail is an order of magnitude uh, better than them in terms of the specificity or uh, the absence of false positives. And what's the price? Uh, the price is uh, $950. And uh-huh. that's they, the same as when it launched. Is that right? Uh, that's the same as when it launched. Um, and, and at this point, I have no affiliation with uh, official affiliation because Grail was uh, acquired by Illumina. Um, I was a, a board member and vice chairman of the board at the time of the acquisition. So at this point, I have no official connection to Illumina or Grail. Uh, so I can express uh, personal views, um, and a personal view is uh, that that is a at the nine hundred fifty dollars price point. That is, it's great that it's available to people, but ultimately, uh, Grail should be a reimbursed test, and it should ultimately be much lower cost, and it should be available to everyone that's eligible, as opposed to it just being, you know, available today to people who can afford that price. Because coming back to the original vision, if what we have here is a screening test that can be done off of a simple blood sample in otherwise healthy people, like say in their 40s, 50s, maybe 60s, if you want to reach the masses, the true mass market, it's it's going to have to be at a lower price. Absolutely. Absolutely. It should be uh, substantially lower cost and it should be a reimbursed uh, product. And insurance companies have been balking thus far. Do do any reimburse for it? Uh, not the insurance companies of their own volition. So what Grail has been doing is, uh, while that process of getting reimbursement uh, settled, uh, Grail has been going out and engaging uh, employers, self-insured employers, uh, and uh, concierge doctors and um uh, actually, interestingly, life insurance companies uh, who are offering it um, as part of their uh, services. So, for example, uh, you know, progressive companies uh, offer it as a benefit for their employees, oh. as opposed to it being offered through the the large payers directly themselves of their own choice and volition. That's interesting. Trying to find some creative ways to get it more widely adopted and. Uh, um, which may take some time for this yeah, to but, really find its full footing. But, but um, a, a fascinating demonstration of the lack of alignment of incentives in our uh, medical system, the U.S. medical system, at least today, is uh, I mentioned life insurance companies. So uh, life insurance companies uh, aren't using it as a condition of offering coverage. But once you have life insurance with them, uh, life insurance companies want you to live forever because they want you to keep uh, keep paying your premiums and then they want to delay the payout as long as possible. Uh, that's good business for them. So the fact that life insurance companies are offering Grail as a benefit for their uh, uh, covered customers um, uh, says something about the, the math that they were able to do. That is fascinating. If they've got a 50-year-old customer, catch a little bit of cancer, catch it early, whack it with some chemo, uh, live forever. Yep. <laughs> keep keep paying your premiums. The, the okay. incentives are aligned. <laughs> Whereas our, our, our healthcare system, the incentives are not nearly as well aligned. Yeah. 
yeah, they look at this and say, gosh, um, this is going to cost us money. And then if we catch something, well, then they're going to run through more tests that we're going to have to pay for, which we'd rather not pay for. Uh, yeah, health insurance. The, the, the health insurance model is caught in a prisoner's dilemma, um, uh, which is they the the kind of short-term thinking is drive driven by in the US are most people get their insurance through their employer, with the exception of, of Medicaid and, and a few other programs. Uh, but most people get their insurance through their employer. The turnover rate as our economy has shifted to be more and more of a service-based economy is getting uh you know lower and lower. It's on the order of two years now. So the insurance companies, the payers look at things as unless they can get less than a two-year payback uh, on on a product, unless it's you know legally required or mandated, unless they can see less than a two-year payback, they don't want to pay for it. They would rather right. kick the hand down the road and have you get a late-stage diagnosis at your next employer rather than paying the preventive cost uh, up front. Let's try to move that off onto some uh, one of our competitors. Some other health insurance yep. company can pay for that down the road. Yeah. And and if they could actually coordinate and recognize the systemic costs, um, it is strongly in their interest to do so, like life insurance companies have figured out, or like Grail is also now working with the UK national health system, a single payer system, um, where they take a longer term view and uh, you know both the the impact outcome of saving lives uh, aligns with ultimately saving money for the system. I wonder if this tips at some point when enough people get uh, access to it or aware of it, maybe from Grail, but others too. I mean, Exact Sciences, company you know, has a, a offering here, Thrive Earlier Detection is coming down the road. You get yep. more voices in the marketplace, maybe that will um, change this paradigm. Yeah, no, we we at Grail and and have been working with Exact and and others to try to uh, build awareness of the segment, which is now broadly called multi-cancer early detection. Um, so Grail is an instance uh, of that test uh, uh, of that category, but um, there will ultimately be uh, multiple products uh, in that category, and we re really need to demonstrate the the impact that this has on. You know, most importantly, in my view, saving lives, but uh, more broadly, the uh, healthcare economic system impact, which ultimately will be quite positive. Okay. Now, Jeff, uh, you're no longer on the board of Illumina, so I think you're at liberty to talk a little bit about this. But, you know, Illumina um, decided a couple years ago to reacquire Grail. You know, it had mm -hmm. spun up, been an independent company, and then Illumina bought it back for, I think, $8 billion or so. Um, it was a since then, uh, regulators in Europe and the U.S. have kind of looked askance and uh, tried to, um, or I think the FTC ordered um, a divestment uh, from Illumina to get rid of Grail, uh, that this was anti-competitive. Um, this has been, caused a lot of shareholder consternation and activist battle. The CEO has since left. Um, what do you think is going to, what is going on here? with Grail and and do you think this is going to resolve itself in any sort of positive way um so i think at the time of the acquisition uh we grail and illumina were naive unfortunately with how politicized the regulatory system 
has become, or at that point was really tipping towards becoming. And uh, again, I'm not a representative of Illumina nor of Grail. I'm sharing my personal views. Um, but it has become evident that the, the FTC and uh, the EU authorities are at this point not aligned with uh, kind of any reasonable interpretation of, of laws uh, or of historical precedents. They really are trying to set new precedent because they want to expand the the remit and the scope of of you know what they can do in their power and their findings and the if you look back on the on the history of it uh you know the the FTC objected when Illumina and Grail went to them with the deal and uh the FTC objected which was kind of a surprise uh, but then there's a process for resolving that and you go to court and there were then a multi-month lead up to uh, what was going to be a court uh, hearing um, that uh, where Illumina and Grail could make its case and then the FTC could make its case and then there would be a, a, an impartial um, judicial finding. And a couple of weeks before that was actually going to happen, the FTC kind of looked at the facts and reality of it and um, seemed to recognize that they were going to lose that court hearing. And uh, instead, uh, they withdrew their objection without prejudice, which is legalese for we reserve the right to screw with you in the future. And um, then communicated with slash colluded with the European Union authorities to have them uh, raise an objection. And at that point, Grail had no customers, no product launched in the EU. Um, pretty clearly, by most interpretations, shouldn't be part of EU jurisdiction. But that was then a, you know, go fetch water there. And uh, when you resolve uh, things there, come back and we'll restart the clock on you here. So it felt like um, they had created a model where, regardless of the legal legality of a of a deal or historic precedence of a deal, um, they could disrupt or blow up any deal they wanted with this new technique. Well, it's a pretty serious allegation you're alleging there. Um, I the only thing that I would say, without having a representative from the regulatory agencies here to to rebut, I, I think that you know listeners should know Illumina does have the dominant position in DNA sequencing, something like I don't know eighty to ninety percent market share. Uh, of the DNA sequencing instruments themselves. And I think there is, now while they don't have that dominant market share in the clinical diagnostic applications that come from uh, that platform, I think that is the theoretical concern at least, that um, they could use that um, that dominant position to lever in and achieve dominance in this uh, adjacent field. Now, I mean, just a few minutes ago, I mentioned Exact Sciences as a pretty significant competitor in this this area, and it's nascent. So by definition, there there is no dominant player. Um, yeah. So I think so, that that so would I, be that that would be the argument the Illumina lawyers would be making. Uh, so yes, this is a segment that doesn't exist yet that does have multiple uh, participants in helping define the segment. 
Um, and I mean, the FTC and, and other regulators have tools uh, when there is an issue to intervene. But in this case, there, I, don't, I don't know if you're a science fiction fan. Uh, have you ever seen the movie or read the book Minority Report? Yeah. Um, so if you remember the Minority Report pre-crime police uh, <laughs> can, can identify crimes before they happen um, and prosecute them. Uh, in this case, it feels a bit like the authorities are are the minority report pre-crime police. And that is uh, a bit concerning. That's quite concerning. Yes. And yeah. and the other side of this is, you know, they're I, I, I am confident that they are uh, have positive intentions in what they're trying to achieve. And this is really kind of Grail Illumina's one instance across a much broader set of of mergers and acquisitions being blocked or slowed across across multiple industries, across biotech and uh, and tech. And um, I'm sure that they have uh, positive intentions around what they're trying to do, but there isn't recognition of the cost of what they're doing, which in the case of Grail, the, the net effect has been uh, so Illumina ultimately decided to to go ahead uh, and close the deal um, uh, while the FTC had withdrawn their objection in the U.S. So it was uh, uh, within their purview to do that. Um, and uh, Illumina then did it in the face of objection of the EU, but it seemed pretty clear that the EU shouldn't have jurisdiction and as part of that, Illumina had a uh, did a hold separate where they agreed not to integrate um, uh, or accelerate the activities of, of Grail. The net effect of that has been that Grail, you know, is now part of Illumina. Illumina owns the asset. Um, it is a commercially launched product and is available, but uh, not nearly at the you know accessibility or um, uh, scale that it could and should be, and. The effect of that is that Grail isn't as accessible, available, low cost as it could be. And uh, ultimately, people don't have it available. And the cost of that is lives lost, where every day people are not getting a test that they could, that could have detected early. And then their cancer is being detected late when the odds are against them and the outcomes are are much worse. So... You know, while on one hand you can say that you know it's it's uh, it's politics or it's the regulators doing their job, the real cost of it today is lives lost. Well, it's a really interesting case study because, and I don't I don't want to move on here pretty quick, but the the antitrust enforcement historically, or the last I don't know 30, 40, 50 years, has been about um, policing these things so that in cases where consumers get harmed with with products that are set at higher prices by monopolists which yep. they are are apt to do uh but there has been increasing literature that this isn't always uh the kind of har- the only kind of harm that can happen with mergers uh that mergers can be used to uh squelch competition and hold uh onto dominant market positions even when the product itself is not really uh being price gouged onto the consumer that that we want to create uh you know a lively uh dynamic competitive business environment uh where startups can compete with big companies like Illumina. Um, and so I, I think that's partly the the guiding intent. Uh, at least that's what I've read. But um, 
as you say, there there may be some um, some consequences to going down this road. Uh, um, there is it, a very real cost of it that isn't being recognized, and uh, there are tools in place to, if and when that ever becomes an issue, to appropriately deal with them, and a dynamic environment where. Uh, you know, the the sequencing market itself is dynamic and there are multiple competitors and, you know, great products and tools coming out all the time. Okay. I, we all, we're out of time here, Jeff, but I want to ask you just a little bit about your new thing in venture capital. You started this firm with a couple of colleagues called Triatomic Capital. What is this? First off, what are you trying to do? Sure. Um, so once the the... Uh, the deal was closed with uh, with Illumina, and uh, it was clear the Grail was not going to continue to be an independent entity or uh, continue on an IPO path. Um, that then freed me up to decide uh, a next chapter. And after a little bit of contemplation, decided to join forces with a couple of friends and colleagues who were builders of uh, two of the kind of very prominent uh, venture capital firms uh, out there. Uh, uh, one from Kotu Management had been there for a decade. The other had been at uh, Deerfield Management, uh, a health tech, med tech uh, oriented firm, had also been there for a decade. And uh, we joined forces to create Triatomic Capital. And our mission together is that we want to work with great entrepreneurs to build century defining uh, businesses and technologies. Um, century defining century defining so underscores the ambition behind what we're doing our focus is on what we call applied ai which is our very opinionated view of where uh, ai is going next and where value is going to be created um, it's ultimately kind of a data first data centric approach so our thesis is that value will disproportionately go to uh, teams and companies that are generating important strategic proprietary data at quantity and quality that then they're uh, able to uh, unlock and accelerate with uh, with AI tools. So we're big believers in the power and impact of, of AI, but take a data first view to it. And then we concentrate that into a set of uh, what we call our industry or sorry, our century defining themes. Uh, which are really our bets on kind of the five megatrends that will define uh, the next several decades and ultimately the balance of the century. So that's where uh, the greatest uh, impact will come and therefore the greatest opportunities for returns. This sounds like first principles thinking, like first, uh, <laughs> what what types of data do you want to collect? What for? How high quality of a means can you use? Yep to collect this data and then push it into the AI systems to analyze it. Is that right? Yes. Yeah. So it really starts with data. And then the other observation is, you know, some of our perspective on this is, um, uh, I think I mentioned earlier when we, we covered some of the background and history, um, you know, I, I uh, with my teams uh, built some of the first, uh, AI systems, the first machine learning systems at Google, and then another wave of them of deep learning systems. So have, you know, we have kind of 20 years of perspective of seeing the trend lines of AI and where things are going. And in that evolution from machine learning systems to deep learning systems to now the generative AI systems, I mean, in some respects, the systems are becoming bigger and more complex, but they're actually getting conceptually simpler. 
And uh, if you look at now the excitement around generative AI and large language model systems, it really is a conceptually very simple model where you're just applying massive amounts of data and compute to it. So increasingly in AI, the, the, the input data defines the output of the system. So in a lot of respects in AI systems, the strong trajectory is towards the data is the code. And for us, that underlines, uh, underscores the importance of, of data and uh, kind of our data first approach. And you can apply this toward uh, applications in biology, chemistry, uh, energy. Uh, other- exactly. Exactly. So we, I mean, we believe strongly kind of a cornerstone of our approaches around what we call engineered biology, um, which is kind of encapsulates uh, uh, all of those things. It's very data centric. There's still a huge amount that we're we're learning and discovering uh, around biology. But ultimately, we're on a trajectory where, um, you know, we think that if there's one thing that stands out, that could be the thing that defines the 21st century. It's really our in, our ability to now engineer biology at a cellular level. And you can see that already with, you know, breakthroughs in cell therapies and gene therapies where now we're able to, you know, we're at the early days of it, but already we can cure previously incurable diseases. Um you know, the therapeutic uh, progress in the therapeutic war against cancer is going to come probably disproportionately from our ability to engineer the immune system to to do the right things um, against cancer. And then even beyond that, you know, beyond human biology, of synthetic biology, of being able to, you know, engineer cells that uh, 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 or engineer at a cellular level to create, you know, turn cells into the manufacturing factories of the next generation of capabilities we need. Hearing you talk about um, engineering cells and bioengineering, it makes me smile because I know <laughs> that your daughter is uh, studying this very, very field uh, oh, yeah. as an undergraduate. And, um, um, you know, I had the privilege to get to know both you and her on uh, the Everest Base Camp trek um, that I organized in 2022 for the Fred Hutch. Um, do you want to share just a little bit about uh, why? that appeal to you why you chose to do that at that moment in your life uh the the move towards uh kind of early stage investing no uh, no uh joining oh. the Everest base oh. camp trek uh giving oh. back to cancer research oh spending, absolutely spending time on the trail with your daughter <laughs> well it was also an opportunity to spend quality time on the trail with you luke <laughs> we had some trail conversations yes we, we, had, we had some trail conversations no it was um uh so so thank you again for the opportunity to include her in um uh you know i saw it as uh here's a, a an opportunity for uh an amazing inspiring adventure um, with a, a group, a community of people that you're building through kind of all of your philanthropic efforts, but, um, you know, in a really unique, uh, uh, space and place. And then the additional dimension of, um, it being for the benefit of cancer research. And, uh, if you, you know, think back to the, the group that we had and, and actually the group stays uh, very active. We still have an ongoing, uh, a uh, discussion group, chat group that's uh, quite active, still almost on a on at least a, a, a weekly, if not sometimes daily basis. I know, uh, I love that. 
So a, a great group that came together, but really one that was unified and inspired by cancer. And we had, you know, people whose lives uh, who had lost loved ones to cancer. Um, so it was extra meaningful. Uh, people who were cancer survivors, so it was uh, uh, extra meaningful. So the the combination of those factors, uh, it ended up, you know, great group of people for a great cause, and ended up being a, um, you know, in part because of the the place as well being very spiritual, a you know, a, a spiritual experience uh, in addition. And I'm so grateful that you uh, agreed uh, to have my daughter come along, who. Uh, is interested in in this field and and wants to have an impact and uh, the opportunity for her to to meet other people uh, on the track who were a few year few years further down the line of their professional careers and development and the kind of uh, sense of purpose that they had around they were what they were doing and the impact that they have had, but also to see that you know people were were sharing uh, their stories and and very personal stories of how it's not always a a straight line of kind of what are the the twists and turns and bumps uh that people uh experience in their uh, professional and personal lives of getting to where they are now which you know e each of the people there was uh was very impressive but um kind of hearing the stories behind it i think was was extra uh interesting and impactful for my daughter who's now you know looking up that big hill of of how do i get there from here <laughs> yeah so she's about i don't know 20 years old um uh, sophomore now yes yeah, studying biomedical engineering and bioinformatics i mean what a time in the history of biology and biotech yeah. to be 20 years old and studying these things and to think about what you might do with yep. your career and, it's and pretty for, pretty amazing uh, we we live in incredible, amazing times. Yeah, just seeing the the rate of discovery and evolution and impact. And uh, I'm an optimist, and part of our, uh, you know, back to the investing side of things, the 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 focus on century defining themes. Ultimately, those are the areas that we think will have the biggest impact, and ultimately, you know, the biggest positive impact on humanity. So, does this remind you a little bit about when you were uh, entering? Uh computer science in the 80s uh you know i i i was right before so computer science was really interesting then but i think the thing that really took it to the next level of of where my mind expanded was um with the growth of the internet and seeing the impact that that had and how just um uh, kind of universally impactful that could be um and i think it's been you know there are some 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 uh, sharp edges to it, but I think that the net has been uh, pretty amazingly positive. Uh, Last thing I want to ask you, Jeff, um, you're you made this move over into venture capital. You've got your thesis around century defining companies. I'm sure you think there are, there are opportunities out there. Why do you think now is a good time to build a biotech company or invest in one? Yep. Um, so I think the foundation is the discussion that we just had of you know, the rate of uh, scientific uh, insight and discovery and learning um, is incredible and it's accelerating. And I think it's being accelerated dramatically by uh, kind of the big data generation capabilities and then now AI tools to help understand and, and accelerate it. Um, you know, more specifically on why right right now, um, 
you know, we're the, the, the market has gone through a bumpy period. Uh, things were kind of frothy a couple of years ago in uh, uh, and on an unsustainably uh, on an unsustainable trajectory. Um, it has been a pretty significant readjustment, and you're seeing a lot of impact of that of you know companies scaling back or or layoffs or um, or things like that. But the reality is that we had gotten too far ahead, and this is a necessary readjustment. And you know we see now amazing companies and opportunities and and um, uh, you know really inspiring. Uh, teams that want to go after things, but now with a more reasonable place in terms of valuation. And I think ultimately better companies being built because they're getting the right culture bits set from the beginning of having a mindset of frugality and a mindset of focusing on kind of customers and partners and generating revenues as a measure of value that's being delivered and then using those margins to drive the future capital requirements of the business. Um, you know, the, 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 the previous model of, we went through a, a very unique period and it was fun while it lasted of, of essentially money was free. Um, that's never existed before in the modern economy. So we think that this period now is more realistic and kind of the, 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 the new old reality, um, where, you know, great companies will be built and, um, you know, now you can, uh, kind of build from the right foundation. Maybe you could call it back to the fundamentals. And exactly. I, 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 and I totally agree. I, I look at all these things that you mentioned and also uh, just the the accumulated scientific knowledge, the speed of accumulating new knowledge, the, the pool of experienced people, and all these technologies that um, have been emerging kind of in parallel for uh, understanding targets and new modalities and the computation to analyze all the data. I mean, all these things are emerging and making it um, a really great time to yeah. be uh, it's, doing doing this it, kind it, of thing. It, it, it's an incredible time to be alive. It's an incredible time to be you know in this industry that is making such progress and having such impact. Um, it's incredibly exciting. Jeff Huber, thank you so much for joining me on the long run. Thank you very much, Luke. And I just want to say thank you uh, for all that you do um, in this industry between your uh, philanthropy that we talked about uh, earlier. You've raised millions of dollars uh, for great causes, for cancer research, for poverty, um, the great work you do and with the Timmerman Report and, and here in the long run. Um, I mean, I'm so honored to be counted among the, the uh, an amazing group uh, of, of accomplished people. Um, that I've joined you on this. I'm, I'm honored and humbled, but what you're really doing is bringing together people and building community and telling positive stories, uh, about people who are very, and companies who are very purpose-driven and trying to have an impact. And, uh, I think, you know, for doing that, you are an absolute treasure. So thank you for the opportunity to join you here. Wow. That's, very kind of you, Jeff. Um, and if folks made it all the way to the end of this podcast and you want to listen uh, for two hours, let me know. And maybe we can extend these long runs to uh, two hours. <laughs> Thanks, Jeff. Bye. Thanks for listening to The Long Run, a production of Timmerman Report. Pedro Rosado of Headstepper Media was the sound editor. Music is from D.A. Wallach. See you next episode.